This is a public service announcement with guitar. And welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock here once again with Ed Smith. We are a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's over 130 Labor Radio podcast shows just like this one. You can check them all out at laborradionetwork.org. Before we get to our show, proper breaking news. It looks like the Nabisco strike is over, which is... uh, Good news. You can go back to eating those Oreos and Fig Newtons and all that good stuff. Uh, not just yet, uh, but very late last night, uh, negotiators from the uh, Baker's Union reached a tentative agreement with Nabisco Mandelez on a new contract. We'll be getting more details in the days ahead. Keep uh, keep an eye at dclabor.org, but uh, hopefully they got a good contract, and that's good news. Ed Smith, so you can uh, get back to having those cookies, right? That's right. Uh, good afternoon, Chris, and hello to everybody. Hey, and by the way, uh, just for those those of you that have not been following the story, either with PFW or other outlets, uh, it affects uh, quite a few uh, workers in Richmond, Virginia, That's Oregon, right. Colorado, um, Illinois, and I'm missing one other, but five different plants and uh, thousands of employees. So this is Uh, a strong, uh, tentative uh, victory for us. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Ed Smith. All right. Got a great show for you on today's show. Bad bosses, stories of a-hole managers and the workers. This is great stuff, Greg. You like this? I know this is just for you, Ed. (laughs) We're going to talk with Mother Jones editor Jacob Rosenberg about a brand new feature in the publication Named after, of course, the legendary labor organizer, one of my favorites. Uh, Then, uh, if you want shorter lines at airport security, you're going to need to improve conditions for TSA workers. We're going to check out how from Johnny Jones. He's secretary treasurer of AFGE's TSA Council. And last but certainly not least, we are still struggling with the effects of the global pandemic. Now we're looking at the threat of mass evictions on top of a housing shortage. So we'll talk with Race and Economic Empowerment Project Director James Benton about affordable housing in D.C. during and after the pandemic, plus more music from Working in D.C., which is wrapping up its run this weekend if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, the show's Thursday through Sunday on Black Lives Matter Plaza, right in front of the AFL-CIO. I know I'm going to be down there checking it out, so we'll have a little more music for you. But I want to start off to sort of set uh, to set the stage. Let me give you a little quote here. Uh, I had to clean it up a little bit for radio, but uh, here it goes. This is a series about jerks, blowhards, racists, creeps, narcs, petty tyrants, Tenured incompetence, passive aggressive underminers, Taylorist fuss budgets, Pinkertonish snoops, pious liberal union killers, and sneering capitalist poopy heads. Which oh, is my. to say, it is a series about bosses, maybe even your boss. Jacob, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Thank you for having me. Thank you for cleaning that up, too. I realized that at first, somehow we wrote a series about bad bosses and ended up cursing every third line. 
I don't know what Some, I know, right? What's up with that? I, I, I got to tell you, uh, we were talking about it. You know, Working America years ago had a bad bosses contest. And I was actually reviewing, you know, they had this, you know, you could people could submit these stories. And, and I was part of the review and editing process. And I was asking you before we came on the air, your hair is kind of curly. You know, did it used to be straight and these stories just curled? Yeah, these are pretty awful stories, right? I mean, they're incredible. The the thing about these stories is we wanted to set out to do a story on on bad bosses. And even the word bad, I hesitate to put in there. You know, it's it's about bosses and this entire system that makes people control your life without much without much democracy in the workplace. So we just asked, started asking for readers and asked every reporter at Mother Jones, you know, call a few of your sources and just give us an idea of the stuff that you have to cut out of every story. It's some policy story and you're writing about gig workers. And so you want to explain all the horrible stuff with Prop 22. But also you just want to explain what people's lives are like. How does it feel to work for a bad boss in any company? And the stories that come back are just incredible. They, they make you go a little bit crazy, but also I thought that if we put in it a big package, we could sort of say, kind of Studs Terkel style, here's just what it is like to work under this system in this way. And like you said, just reading them over and over, we thought we maybe have 10. We have like 20 plus stories here because they're just so, so many and it's so prevalent. Well, and thanks for the Studs Terkel because, uh, reference because two things. Uh, we're doing working in D.C., uh, so I've been thinking about Studs a lot because, of course, working in D.C. is, is based on uh, his, his oral histories. But I was kind of flashing on that reading your stories because these are not just very qu- – I mean, you really go into some incredible detail – uh, and, and I'm going to ask you to sort of pick out a few of your quote unquote, you know, favorites. But let me get Ed Smith here because uh, Ed's known his share of bad bosses, haven't you, Ed? I have. And um, boss, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> no, 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 no bathroom breaks. Not for the next hour anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway, I joke about that because that's one of the big issues, uh, especially at a big place like Amazon. They yeah. time your they time your bathroom breaks. And I just wanted to point out that California has passed the landmark bill about a week ago that um, requires uh, the uh, warehouses to disclose to government agencies and employees these metrics that they use to track workers. And it would ban penalties for time off task, going to the bathroom, trying to grab an apple to eat. Um, so, you know, we talk, we think about the bad bosses of the 30s and the 40s. Um, it's probably worse now because the percentage of unionized employees have uh, decreased, has decreased dramatically. Um, but all you need to look at is Amazon. And Amazon ain't the only one, Buster. So uh, I'm actually interested in, in hearing uh, Jacob uh, recount us with maybe a, a, a couple of his favorite tales of bad bosses. Go yeah. for it, Jacob. Hit us with it. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite is just speaking of that is we wanted to have one and conceptualize, okay, in this new world, in this new economy, who is a boss and how do you define a boss? And part of that is this Instacart one. We just have someone describing what it's like to work at Instacart. What's it like when your boss is not a human who has to look you in the eye, but it's <laughs> someone chatting to you like, oh, my bananas aren't green enough. I'm not going to tip you, you know? <laughs> these crazy things to get a batch to live, you know, you start making 40, $50 an hour, maybe at the beginning, they kind of bait you into thinking, okay, I can be a gig worker. I'm going to, I'm going to make a living doing this. And then suddenly you're waking up at 5:30 AM. You're working for, you know, below minimum wage. You're driving all over the place. And then something bad happens. 
And not only do you have a no jerk boss that is going to say it to your face, you just have someone texting you over and over again. So we have a great Instacart one from someone in Iowa City kind of talking about that. Another one that I think is, is worth pointing out is a lot of these stories, a big part of the package was saying, okay, here's what's going on in the, big, in the, in the news cycle with the quote unquote economy from labor shortages to nurses quitting in ma- en masse. Like, let's, let's see what those stories are actually like. So there's a really great one in here about a COVID ICU nurse. And she discusses all these things that you hear about in every other article, but it's all her life at once. So not only is she getting shifted around between COVID ICU units, people are coughing in her face and saying COVID isn't real, but then also she's got this jerk boss who's being a sexist, uh, who's being sexist and who's saying all these, you know, horrific things to her all the time. And she has to deal with that on an everyday basis. And then, so those are some of my favorites. And then there's two in here that are both about prison guards. And there's a recent book that came out called Dirty Work that just sort of talks about how our economy shoves certain people into jobs and they make certain people do jobs that no one else wants to do and that a lot of people disagree with morally. You know, Mother Jones has written a lot about prisons and how horrible they are. And so we were interested, what's it like working there? It's terrible. You know, the... You can only imagine what would happen to the incarcerated folks based off of the stories that you hear about. And one of the stories in here that I think is really worth reading, this woman had workers cop because she was shooting on the gun range and she injured her herself. And her boss stalks her. Her boss literally comes to her house and starts stalking her to prove the workers comp claim. And it's just wild stories like that that you hear over and over and over again across every single industry. And those are combined with the funny little things like someone just told us a quick two sentence story about watching his boss walk past him every single day to the bathroom with his own brand of toilet paper because he liked it better. And, you know, so he would bring it in. He wouldn't share with anyone else. He wouldn't buy good stuff for the office, but he'd have his fancy toilet paper and walk to the bathroom. So it's a combination of those small indignities and then the large indignities of the economy sort of all together in this figure of the boss. We're talking with Jacob Rosenberg. He is the co-editor of a really great new feature from uh, the wonderful Mother Jones publication. It's called Bad Bosses. And it's a series of, of just, you know, as told to stories, that, as Jacob says, you know, people just really kind of, you know, let down their hair. And I want to just dig a, a little deeper into a couple of them. I want to start with the, the, the one you just mentioned, the COVID ICU one. Uh, partly because um, Ed, Ed is out of the uh, the nurses here in D.C., so he's always interested particularly in, in things involving nurses. And I have to say, Jacob, your your headlines and, and sort of short versions are really they, – they really draw you in. You know, your headline here is, you know, I worked in a COVID ICU. My boss told me the only snack in his office was him. Now, this is actually a fairly long story, but you, you need to kind of explain where that – the, the, the crack about the only snack in his office was him, how, how that comes about, because there's some, some really just disgusting backstory to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd love for people to go read these, um, and they can, they can read them all on our site. But, you know, a big part of that COVID ICU nurse one was we were reaching out to, to nurses to talk to them about what it was like to work in, in, during the pandemic and if they had bosses. And this, this nurse reached out to us, and she basically said, I have this manager. And he would say all these sly things and he would transfer me around and he would sort of abuse his privilege in order to put me in these sexually suggestive situations. And he said, you know, he, there's parts of this that are just crazy, but when you're a nurse in these situations, we always, and we've been writing about ICU nurses and the pandemic, we were sort of thought that this boss story would be about how hard it's been during COVID. Right. And we start talking with her. 
And it's all about how her boss is sexist and on top of that and wants to touch her and have sexually suggestive things to her. So I think that that combination of those two factors is really what it's about. But, you know, he's he's using how bad things are with the pandemic to put her and her and other workers, I'm sure, in situations that are um, that are sexist and that we talk about sexual harassment all the time. So something you don't hear as much about the pandemic is how it exacerbates the problems that that nurses and other workers are already dealing with. So the pandemic becomes a way that uh, a bad boss can put someone in a sexual harassment situation. So that's where these stories collide together, something like Me Too and um, and COVID ICU nurses in the pandemic sort of become one story in the same on 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 this COVID ICU nurse. Well, and the thing is, you know, to your point, you know, and it's a it's a very you know long detailed story. And again, you can get them all at motherjones.com. Just look for bad bosses. Uh, unfortunately, they're all over the place, but you'll be able to find this story. But as you were saying, this guy, first of all, this guy, this uh, supervisor you're talking about, just had this interesting habit of only hiring very attractive nurses. And then, as you said, he'd never say things in front of other people, so you couldn't really distinguish whether he was joking. So this is the nurse talking. The only time I would go by the old manager's office was to get candy after he left this other. The new guy took his office, and she would go there to get candy, but the candy bowl was always empty. And I was like, where's the candy? And he was like, the only snack in this office is me. And, you, you know, you just – it's it's creepy. It's disgusting. And, and Ed, I just want to throw it to you here because I know you've got members. I'm sure you've heard these stories. Yes, and and you know the the larger picture here uh, during the pandemic, and not just during the pandemic, but during just regular working in hospitals, you can all imagine what it must be like to work in hospitals where it is constantly understaffed, and you're now having very very dangerous uh, working conditions, and. The optimal, the optimal um, approach should be that management should be doing everything it, it can to assist the workers in the hospitals, um, assist the workers in the grocery stores, etc. Um, and some of them do, some of them do, and some uh, HR representatives take their jobs seriously. But unfortunately, it is all too many that do not, and supervisors like that get away with totally inappropriate conduct for years and some people will complain amongst themselves and even in a union environment you will find that people will not say anything until years later i have a case going on right now it has nothing to do with sexual harassment but it does have something to do with a boss that was horrible and you know would micromanage uh would intimidate especially female nurses um and a year and a half after the discipline, we're getting statements from nurses now talking about what this man has done in the recent past. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful we're in a union environment because if we weren't in a union environment, I mean, it took him a year to get me to get the courage to write statements. Can you imagine what it would be like in a non-union environment? Well, Jacob, let me ask you to 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 Ed's point. You know, you you've read enough of these. Uh, you know, talked to enough of these folks. Now, are you are you seeing any sort of general trend? I mean, Ed raises one. I think one of the things that we've seen on the show over the years is, you know, there's a big difference, obviously, between people who have a union and people who don't have a union, right? Even though people who don't have a union have lots of rights, they often don't know about them, but. Um, are, are you seeing any patterns? Are you seeing any trends, you know, as, as you're hearing these stories? 
Yeah, I mean, one trend is, like you pointed out, Ed, you know, in the union environment, you'll find that people can push back. We have a really short story in here about another medical environment where the only pushback was the union against a really horrible chief ER doc. But I think that across the board, I think when we talk about bosses in general, a lot of times when we read about stories, there's this piecemeal approach in which we say, if we just fix this policy, if we just fix this policy on NDAs, if we just fix this policy on workplace harassment, and hopefully some of the bad bosses package and putting this all in a package together sort of conceives of, we really need to think about the entire work environment and what it means for workers and like y'all do on the show to have rights and, and to be able to say something. And I think during this moment right now where we're having these questions about what does work look like? You know, is there a quote unquote labor shortage? All these big economic questions need to be grounded in the experiences of workers and across the board, what we're trying to say about bosses is they have the power and what does it mean to question that power? And when you see people questioning that power, you know, these are 20 stories about bad bosses, but they're also 20 stories about workers who either fought back or afterwards have said that was horrible. And if you have that many people saying that my boss can't do that to me, that's actually a pretty powerful thing because it means that people are realizing that they can't be treated like that both at the time or afterwards. And so I think that the under, the undercurrent message here is that a lot of people are saying that they're not willing to put up with it anymore, um, both in union and non-union environments. And I think that going forward, um, you know, you've seen a pretty radical unionization in the media sphere. And I think that other places are more and more talking about knowing their rights. And so I know it doesn't seem hopeful when you read 20 stories about bad bosses, but actually it was kind of hopeful because people are really fed up and, and people are willing to really do something. And that was part of the inspiration for this package too, was, you know, I got hired at Mother Jones and I, I was reading the autobiography and she uses bosses basically as an insult. You know, she calls people bosses all the time. And I loved that. And we wanted to do a package that was centered that idea. What does it mean to question the boss and question when a workplace doesn't treat you well? And I think these are a lot of people who do. And, and Jacob, that's a great place for us to wrap on this. You, if I knew this, I forgot it. Uh, remind our listeners of where the word boss comes from. This is this is fascinating. It's, I, I totally... I'm not sure I ever knew it, to be honest. Yeah, we were doing a little like etymology search and sort of a big part of bosses. And this guy, David Rodeger, writes about this. You know, white workers basically didn't want to be compared to black workers. They thought they were better than black workers. And so what they did is the word for boss comes from the word master in Dutch. And over time, you see white workers start using the phrase boss instead of master. And it's in part a way for white workers to feel like they were not associated with and were better than black workers. And so I think a conceptualization of boss also as this way of trying for white workers to feel different and better than black workers was a part of it. And specifically to distance themselves from slavery um, was a part of it. And it's important to think about the ways in which capitalism is tied up with racism in this country and, and bosses and talking about bosses and sort of the hidden meanings of boss underneath it can be an important step there. And we kind of go into that more in the piece, too. That's amazing. Uh, the, a boss is a boss is a boss. I <laughs> Spell it any way you want. Jacob Rosenberg, it's wonderful. Uh, wonderful. It's Bad Bosses. Uh, it's on motherjones.com now. Highly, highly recommended. We will have this at dclabor.org. Jacob, keep up the great work. And thanks so much for being on your rights of work. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, y'all.
All right, Jacob Rosenberg. He is an editor at Mother Jones. And again, that is motherjones.com. Just search for bad bosses. All right. Next up, um, <laughs> I'm sure our next guest could probably talk about bad bosses as well, but we're going to actually uh, focus on uh, an issue that is a lot of folks don't realize this, but it is uh, 20 years ago. Uh, the TSA was created. It's supposed to keep us all safer in these skies, but there are some problems here that you may not be aware of. And to uh, straighten this out uh, on that, Johnny Jones, Secretary Treasurer of the AFGE TSA Council. Johnny, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here and to be able to talk about the, the fights and struggles of the TSA workforce. Uh, it's been a long, uh, long struggle. Um, we started, I started with the agency back in 2002, uh, was one of the first employees hired down here in Dallas. Um, when we started, the, the administrator had full rights to decide if we had any bargaining rights and they immediately stripped them, um, from us. <laughs> and they said, these guys are not going to have any rights. And the first administrator did it, the second, and it continued on until, uh, uh, John Pistol in 2000. 10 gave us provisional bargaining rights, which is very mild form. And that's uh, when we, when AFGE uh, was elected, I could give you a, a whole breakdown of how it worked out. But basically in a nutshell, we still don't have full collective bargaining rights and we're at a whim of an agency that um, we are very fortunate. Um, our agency was one of the least impacted during the Trump administration uh, because we were not under Title five, but we still want to have the same rights and protections of the workforce employees, but the administrator could strip your rights if he, if, you know, if it was under the right administration. So let me just, uh, we need to delve into this just a little bit, because I think a lot of folks uh, need, need reminding of how this all came about. Um, TSA, of course, was created after 9-11. Uh, so this is obviously very timely. We just marked the, uh, the 20th anniversary last weekend uh, of, of that uh, uh, tragedy. Um, and TSA was sort of this big reshuffling of agencies and the Homeland Security and T uh, Transportation Security Administration came out of that. From a union point of view, what happened was that, and what, what Johnny was just referring to, was that there was a bit, I think it's fair to say, there was a bit of a power grab with the administration to be like, oh, you know, these folks you know, don't have the rights that you had under the old, you know, anytime there's a shuffling of, of, of the chairs, if you will, right, Johnny, then there's a discussion about the boss. Speaking of bosses, the boss always wants to say, well, these folks are special, they don't have those rights and so forth. So that that's what you're referring to is that there was this argument, especially having to do, as I recall, with, you know, this is national security. And I think that's how they're able to sort of theoretically justify that you don't get union rights, right? Yeah, so I can give you a real good breakdown. So after 9-11 attacks, uh, the United States was at war, more or less. And when they created TSA, the uh, ATSA created TSA and gave the administrator, uh, they the administrator was allowed to set up his own personal management system. And so that allowed them not to be under uh, OPM. And basically, so there's no OPM guidance. So the administrator was allowed to dictate whatever policies needed to, to fit the agency at that uh, quickly uh, in that time period. Unfortunately, um, when it was done, I believed it was meant to be temporary. Is The agency needed to get up. They had to hire 60 to 65,000 people in a matter of months 
to get this agency up and running. So maybe at the beginning, you kind of see the need. Hey, we don't need to deal with the unions right now. We'll bring them in at a later time. But, uh, um, you know, but that just never happened. And that's what brought us here today. You know, uh, when I first started working, I left a, I left a corporate America job. Um, I was making a lot more money than ever going to make at TSA. Uh, my friends went to the Marines. Uh, I have kids and, and I was a single father at the time. I said, well, I can give back to the country and go work for TSA. I didn't care about the pay. I just wanted to be able to do something to help the country uh, recover. And much like the paperwork that you see flying, you know, all over the streets of, the, of downtown Manhattan, that's how it was when people were getting hired. You would lose your paperwork. You're going through the process. You're hired, but they couldn't find your paperwork. You had to start all over again. It was kind of, mm-hmm. that's, that's how crazy the process was of getting just people on board of the federal government at the time. Um, and in 2008 was the closest we've had these rights. Um, uh, the, we had a bill in, in the, in the Senate, the, the, Defense Authorization Act in 2009, uh, the Senate was going to attach full plate bargaining rights and Title V rights for the TSO workforce. Uh, but at the time, the president of the United States was still George Bush, and he said that if that bill comes to his desk, he's going to veto the bill, thus, thus for not funding the military. And nobody not, did not want to be uh, having that on their hands, so they pulled it out, that language out, because they could not have returned his veto with the 50. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're talking uh, with Johnny Jones. He's Secretary. Secretary Treasurer of AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees, TSA Council. It's a Transportation Administration Council. Uh, that uh, those are the locals, obviously, uh, that represent the uh, people who are in TSA. Let me bring uh, my co-host Ed Smith in because uh, uh, Ed always has something else to bring to the conversation. <laughs> Hi, Johnny. Uh, Ed Smith uh, here. Uh, Twenty years ago, I was employed with a federal. Um, union called National Association of Government Employees. So I remember this time very well. Uh, I also want to put a little context into it as well. The idea of creating um, the the workforce and merging some um, duties that were in other agencies into one agency uh, was obviously arose because of 9-11. And um, there were arguments uh, that um, security officers should not be um, unionized because of national security. But of course, we know that uh, guards, special police officers, police unions, they all have collective bargaining. And one, one other, two other points. In the mid night, this is an outgrowth of what was occurring in the mid 90s under Newt Gingrich's leadership. Um, there was definitely a push, mostly from the Republican side of the aisle, to um, eliminate or at least damage federal bargaining collective uh, federal federal collective bargaining rights anyway, um, and 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 federal employees didn't get the right to bargain until 1961 under Kennedy. So it's not that long ago that they didn't have rights. One other point is we're not talking about rights of bargaining that we see in the in the private sector or in cities, private sector and cities. We negotiate wages, benefits, and all terms of employment. Federal sector, for the vast majority of employees, do not have the right to bargain over wages, do not have the right to bargain over benefits. They are set by statute. So these are limited bargaining rights that for years, um, you know, we just can't seem to get at TSA, and there are some other agencies there as well. Um, So let me ask you a different type of question. What are you going to do with these bargaining rights when we finally get them um, legislated? Um, 
<clears throat> well, let me give you a brief update. The the, the department, the the, the um, Secretary of Homeland Security, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Secretary Mayorkas has granted provisional um, administrative rights, and he's instructed our administrator to give us Title V-like rights. Um, so, but they have, going back to the other part of the question about having them put into law, um, and what are we going to do with those rights? Um, the first thing we, we want to do is transition the career process of the TSA workforce. Uh, when you go to the, when you go to the airport, a TSO is the most likely person that you're ever going to come in contact with in the federal government. And to know that these people are paid and treated fairly when you get on the airplane and they're if, uh, trained well, and we'll be able to bargain um, for some better workplace provisions. Um, and you won't have, instead of a TSO coming in and they're going to work for one or two years and then leave the agency or get fired because they have a really strict probationary period at the agency. And hopefully we can get that fixed because most agencies have one-year probation. TSOs are subject to a two-year probation. By having them at the one-year probationary level, it allows them to become more secure in their environment, which in, in fact makes the airplane safer. Um, and that's something that we're definitely going to be fighting for. Um, changing the, the pay of the, of the TSOs um, under Title V, there's going to be mass. There's going to be a mass need of change in the way that people are paid because we went so many years without pay raises. For an example, I started in 2002. I make $46,000 a year. If you work for the agency now and you're at three years and you're in DFW Airport, you're making approximately forty-three thousand. So my nineteen years of experience is only worth three or four thousand dollars difference to the agency. So when this comes into law, we're going to have to fix it and make sure that the employees are protected. Um, they're timing grade. Most of the people in the federal government say it's timing grade. We, the initial, some of the initial proposals did not have timing grade provisions. So basically, you would fix our pay system, but not protect my timing grade as we're going into this conversion. So we made sure that that was corrected. Um, we, there's a lot of things about the bill that we really like. Um, of course, there's some pushback. The agency supports us having per these administrative rights because under the bills that come in, once we have removed ASA clause that allows the administrator to have uh, the powers that he currently has as, as the administrator for TSA. And the, like our, our current contract is 13 articles. The upcoming contract is going to be 45, 50 articles. To give you an idea of how different the, the life of a TSO is going to be going forward. Um, that's so um, would you have uh, under, uh, uh, under the provisions of the bill, would you, have bar, uh, would you have grievance and arbitration rights? So for those of you in the audience that don't know what arbitration is, it is basically the um, hiring by the employer and the union together of a person that will hear disputes in an unbiased uh, fashion, un unlike um, just going through the agency head and then you have no further rights. So, yeah. Um, under under this system, uh, the previous system up until the Secretary Mayorkas has ordered the changes, um, the administrator had the right not to adhere to the arbitrator awards. So say, for instance, we won the 16-hour shift trade in arbitration. The administrator said, well, I don't think we're going to implement those provisions. So even if you won an arbitrator award, it may not necessarily be put into place. So 
you you might win a bite, you might get a bite on them, but you won't be able to hold on to the fish, so to speak. So the fish is always going to get away <laughs> if you're fighting to get it, and you're yeah. good. It's always going to escape. We are talking with Johnny Jones. He's secretary treasurer of the AFGE TSA Council. Uh, we're talking about getting more rights for TSA workers. You're listening to Your Rights at Work with Chris Garlick and Ed Smith. Johnny. Hey, by what, the way, Chris, yeah. Chris uh, what's the number for uh, people to call in with questions? Gosh, gosh, Ed, that's your job. I don't know. All right. Well, I'll give it out. <laughs> we do. This is a call-in show, and we love to hear from you. Um, 202. 588. Gosh, Ed, I don't know. <laughs> Every now and then you, 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 you get a nice big belly laugh from me and you just did 202-588-0893. Please give us a call. Nicely done. Ed. John, let me ask you a question. What, what is the concern? I think a lot of times, to be honest, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, a title, you know, Title V and arbitration rights, I mean, people, I'm probably even some of our own members, eyes glaze over, right? And they're like, what is the big deal? What's the problem? What, so let me ask you just in terms of layman's terms, right? And I think a lot of people, are, you know, people are thinking about traveling, obviously, they're thinking about the pandemic and stuff like that. But we all, if you travel, if you're taking a plane, you're dealing with TSA officers. What What is the concern, just on a real-life, day-to-day ground concern, what, what's the concern from the union in terms of if, if, if your members don't have these, these full rights, what's the problem? Um, well, first of all, you could, when you're getting an app, when you're under the federal government, they have disciplinary actions and then they have adverse actions, right? Mm-hmm. So under an adverse action, you're, you, you would normally go to the MSPB board. Under the current system, we go to a panel of TSA people, um, who are the, whoever they assign to that panel. So they're agency employees. It's not an independent third party that's actually going to review your case. So if something, if somebody says something about you that may be true or, or unfounded, you may find yourself being removed from the agency because of uh, something that that the panel is going to say. Hey, we agree with the person who wrote it up because he's an agency employee. Mm-hmm. But when you go to the MSPB, they're going to take it from a, a, a higher level. They're going to be at the top of the Empire State Building looking down and say, okay, let's see what really happened here. And they'll be able to see where the agency makes mistakes. So that's the, the further you are away from the agency, the better off you are as an employee to protect your job. Because if you want to make a career out of this, you want to know that you can come to work for TSA for 20, 30 years without having to worry about some arbitrary manager coming along and say, hey, we're going to fire you. We figured it out. And then it goes to this panel. So, you know, I I think um, part of the last segment is appropriate to talk about here. Um, Rather than, you know, worrying about the weeds of what we can bargain and what we can't, as I see it, giving collective bargaining rights, giving a little bit more power to the union and the workers allows people to speak back to the boss more freely. We were just talking about it 15 minutes ago that people are scared and they're scared for good reason. People are not dumb. They know that if they attack the boss, even if they're trying to attack the policy and they're being diplomatic, they know that there's a chance of reprisal with the union with rights. Yes, there's still that chance of reprisal, but if we all stand together and say, you know, that guy, Johnny Jones, he's a bad, bad boss. We got to write statements about him. We got to band together without collective bargaining. 
you can't do that. And even even if the current administrator is supportive of his workers, it's still the message is still you better watch out. They can fire you. And even if you're rightfully wrongfully fired, they got a panel that might say the heck with it. We don't care. You're not putting you to work. Yeah, so you that, bring up a fine. I was going to say, Mr. Smith, you bring up a fine point. If you wear a uniform, you don't have whistleblower rights. That's so, right. So, <laughs> so basically, uh, you there's nowhere to protect yourself. So, you know, until we have these codified in law, could you imagine being a worker and you see somebody stealing and you can't really whistleblow without you potentially being fired too? Wow. So that that's uh, that's the kind of stuff that you have going on. And I'm that's you know I can say I've seen that personally. That's a really good point, Johnny. I did not realize that. Johnny, really appreciate you being on the show. This is good information. And folks, we have a link on our website where you can sign a petition on this. And, and uh, let's let's help out those TSA workers. Johnny Jones, thanks for being on the show. Keep up the great work, brother. All right. Well, thank you very much. And we have a lot of, th- th- just to give you a tidbit, we have uh, 12 Republican co-sponsors. And when it came out of the committee, it came out of the committee with night on a vote of 1911 out of the uh Homeland Security Committee. So we've got strong bipartisan support for this bill. So let's get those Republicans on board. All right. Bipartisan. Not a word you hear too often here in D.C., Johnny. It's a good work. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. That's Johnny Jones. He's Secretary Treasurer of AFGE's TSA Council. And again, more details on our website, dclabor.org, including a link where you can sign a petition. All right. Our last guest today is Race and Economic Empowerment Project Director James Benton, and he's joining us to talk about uh, there's a panel coming up next Wednesday, September 22nd, affordable housing in D.C. during and after the pandemic. Brother Benton, good for good for uh, being here with us. Hey, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to spread the word. Well, I tell you, you know, it just seems like uh, if it weren't for bad luck, we wouldn't have no luck at all. We got the pandemic. It's it's uh, it's over. It's not over. But then on top of this, and I know that, you know, uh, early September, all of the uh, we've got this real wave of evictions that everybody's worried about. But that comes on top of um, already a shortage of housing. And I guess that's yes. what uh, I mean, affordable housing in D.C. sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, right? Well, it, it does seem like a, like an oxymoron to those of us who've been here for some time because we, we've known that there's been a chronic shortage. But, um, but this, during this pandemic, we, we've seen a confluence of factors. Um, you know, the, there's the, there was the budget battle this summer with the D.C. Council. They got some additional federal funding, and the question was how to, how to spend that. Uh, they wound up making the council wound up making a huge boost to the housing production trust fund, but there's still other avenues like housing vouchers and uh, renovations to public housing and services to the homeless. The advocates felt were underfunded in the, in the budget process. Um, The, the eviction moratorium, as you know, the Supreme court threw that out uh, a few weeks ago. And even though there's a, local moratorium that's being phased out through next February. The evictions have already started in D.C. Uh, This week, as a matter of fact, there were roughly 70 scheduled. And by the end of October, there are supposed to be uh, roughly 290 or so uh, more evictions taking place. Mm -hmm. So even though even though that's um, 
you know, you can throw around the words, oh, the, the moratorium's in effect, or there's some protection. There are people right now, this week, who have, who have lost their houses, uh, who have lost their homes. And then, you know, with the pandemic on top of that, and the presence of private equity, buying up houses, shrinking the supply, landlords throwing out tenants so that they can raise rents, uh, we've got a we've got a pretty big issue, and then not even uh, with even with Afghanistan that comes into play because you we're we're resettling uh, people on these uh, special visas, and a lot of times when they get housing assistance, they don't get enough housing assistance to cover a month's rent in this area. So it's not just a matter of 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 concern for the poor. It's not just a matter of concern for working people. It's not just a matter of concern for residents. It's not, it's a matter of concern for even um, in, international uh, people who are fleeing Afghanistan. So it's, yeah, you, you got it. You got it right. It, it seems like an oxymoron, but in this case, we've got all these factors. And so that's why we're, we're putting on this panel to look at a sliver of that issue. So James Benton, he's director of the Race and Economic Empowerment Project at the Cal Menovitz Initiative at Georgetown University. They've got a panel coming up uh, on the housing crisis uh, next Wednesday. We've got uh, you can register. It's free. Uh, at uh, go to dclabor.org and click on calendar. Uh, I want to get Ed Smith in on this uh, as well, and then I want you to talk. You've got a terrific panel lined up, including uh, my boss, Deanna Forrester, who's president of the Metro Washington Council. But uh, yes. Ed, Ed, let me let me defer to you for a second here. First of all, I think you should make it clear that Deanna is not a bad boss. She's a great <laughs> boss. Best <laughs> boss in the world. Absolutely. All right. For the so record. We, we cleared that up. Done. She seems to be a great boss from my from my eye. Um, you know, this is the dirty little secret throughout the country and the world, what we do to people and make them homeless. Mm -hmm. And um, James, I live in Upper Northwest in Petworth, mm -hmm. and my work is off the 11th Street Bridge in Southeast. So when I drive into work, I go down 9th Street. And you know what I see on 9th Street, right? I think 9th and New York Ave, mm -hmm. a bunch of tents of homeless people. So I make my way through the tunnel, and then I get off at 11th Street Bridge, take take a right off the bridge, and what's happening right to my left? More. And that's just two locations. And when I come back home from work, I come up 12th Street. Mm -hmm. And what do I see on 12th Street? Tons of tents. So we've got this problem that, you know, the mayor, I think, does some things around the edges. Um, and then we got a problem with um, potentially – issues that potentially can affect Medicaid insurance. We know that MedStar Hospital uh, was trying to um, uh, basically say they weren't going to uh, have, have any doctors serve service meds, uh, uh, service Medicaid patients recently uh, because they their contract with the mayor uh, had problems and the contract review board threw it out. Now right. the mayor says, well, we're just going to extend it for another nine months. Um, but that issue is going to be, you know, obviously at the front and four. So mm -hmm. we're talking about kicking people out of their homes into yeah. a, into an area where there's already a ton of homeless. And I think there's a bunch of homeless encampments on um, GW Parkway near yeah. Virginia Ave, which yeah. I think they sometimes keep getting kicked out by the cops or whatever. I don't know exactly what's going on with that. Mm -hmm. But you've got kicking them out of their homes in, in, a, in a city that 
already has a big homeless population. We're coming up on winter. Right. They're going to get sick. And then potentially right. they might not, they might get turned away from uh, Washington Hospital Center. And we're um, in the middle of a public health crisis. How about all that? That, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure what my question is to you, but I just wanted to raise some of those things because it's outrageous. Well, let me, let me take that and run with it because that, that actually you, you've set up part of what we're doing. Gotcha. Um, what this, this panel is part of a project that Kalmanovitz called the new social compact. And what we, what we did in organizing that was to build around this idea that this moment, well, actually, when we did, when we started this in 2020, this moment is very much like the New Deal in American history. It's a moment that's ripe for change. Now, you think about all that was happening in 2020. You had the pandemic, you had the economic crisis, uh, unemployment, and um, uh, you know, massive unemployment. You had um, uh, issues of race being brought to the fore with the murder of George Floyd among other individuals around the country. Uh, You had a crisis with climate change. If you remember before the pandemic started, there were these massive fires and and, and ecological disasters taking place. And then what we call a crisis of of, uh, democracy. You know, our our institutions and leaders may not not be in a place to rise to the occasion. So so we thought that this this is a moment where we need to, really pull folks together, um, organizers, activists, people in labor, people in faith organizations, academics, and build and strengthen coalitions to take advantage of this moment to improve conditions for the working class and and, and poor. Um, we feel like this is a moment very much like the New Deal um, in terms of delivering lasting change. And beyond a single bill, we're talking about organizing to talk about bills, but organizing about, hey, designing things that are more equitable, designing things that speak to people's needs, that respond to people's needs. So, so like you said, you didn't, you didn't know where you were going with the question. I don't know if I'm going there with an answer, but that's what I got. You, you, are, you are going there uh, beautifully, brother. And um I know this is a, a professional uh, thing, and uh, but I really want to make sure our organization reach, uh, uh, gets uh, together with yours. Mm-hmm. I think nurses, uh, the nurses union, can certainly bring some assistance to the table, and of course we have the same passion in helping um, the underserved um, as well as well as the as well as people who are rich. We want them to have good health care too, but. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. Well, yes, we know All Lives Matter, but right, right now, right, right. people well, we don't care get... about Black Lives. So that, that, you know, the analogy, I think, is apropos. By the way, tell tell us a little bit about the details of the conference and who's going to be there. Sure. Um, what, what we did was, you know, there are lots of people in D.C. who work on housing, tenant organizing, rent control. Uh, land trust, the whole the whole nine yards. But we wanted to bring in some people who had a little bit of a different experience from it, from from their viewpoints, and and see what what could happen. So we pulled together um, your boss, well, Chris, your boss, Deanna Forrester, um, and and um, the reason why we did that was because you know she's seen she's seen housing as an issue both uh, from being on the DC Housing Authority board 
and also from uh, her experience in collective bargaining. Um, when, when workers have to give up things in collective bargaining because they need to bargain for higher wages to make up for the, the, the housing costs that increasingly eat into their budgets, we have a problem. Um, you know, so, so I wanted to bring that in as a, as a possibility to, um, to have people learn about it from her perspective. Uh, Andrew Trueblood, he's the director of DC Office of Planning. He can give a little bit more of a uh, 500 to 300 foot level view of what's going on with this uh, budget process and what that means in terms of housing production and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, Brian McCabe, he's a professor of sociology at Georgetown, but more importantly, he co-authored a report on evictions last um, fall and showing how evictions in D.C. are disproportionately, shocker, disproportionately concentrated in the suburbs on the east, I mean, the, the wards on the eastern side of the city, seven and eight, and that they're, they're um, racial components, too, and uh, Miles Holloman, he's a, a, an organizer with the Reclaim Rent Control Campaign and uh, an organizer with Love Song Projection, longtime activist who is knowledgeable about uh, housing issues. And I think it's, it's an opportunity to really um, look at this, not in an academic sort of setting, even though we're based at Georgetown. Uh, we want to bring these folks together to talk about the realities that that they see in terms of housing in DC and what can we do uh, from this point forward as we go through the pandemic and we hope at some point we can reach a stage where we can say we're past the pandemic. Um, and I think like I, like what I said with the new social compact, this moment is ripe for change for DC too with the with the new money and uh, you know the new uh, a, a new focus can get us to a better place. Um, I should point out that this is also co-sponsored by the Georgetown Global Cities Initiative. Uh, they bring in uh, some experts on, on housing and uh, planning as well. And it's been a pleasure to work with them and join forces to, to pull this together. So, uh, so that, is, that is our event. It's uh, gonna be Wednesday from one to 2.30, one to two for discussion, two to 2.30 for Q&A and, other discussions. And my hope is that we have a, a, a good conversation that everyone can, can learn something from uh, in just plain English, discussion back and forth. And uh, that's, so that's why we're doing this. Well, James, it's gonna, it looks like it's going to be a great conversation. Again, it's called Affordable Housing in D.C. During mm -hmm. and After the Pandemic. You can go to dclabor.org, click on calendar. It's on September 22nd. It is online. It is free. Brother Benton, thank you so much for organizing it. And thanks for talking about it here on Your Right to Work. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. If I may take one second, mm -hmm. um, oh. I, want to, I want to refer back to Johnny Jones. Okay. 20 years ago, I was covering the creation of TSA in Congress as a, as a writer at Congressional Quarterly. And what I want to say is the, that, that rights, uh, rights to, the right for workers to unionize in TSA was the thing that held that bill up for two months. That's right. They brought it up from 9-11 yep. and uh -huh. it stayed hung up in, in the Senate. The House passed the bill, Senate passed the bill. They couldn't figure out how to conference it. 
And the only thing that moved it was the crash of American Airlines flight seven from New York to Santo Domingo. 265 souls perished in Bell Harbor, Queens on Veterans Day. And if if you so to the to the folks who are listening, if you think that workers' rights are just some kind of abstract thing, the only reason that workers got rights in in that bill was because of that crash and because of those souls that we lost on on um, November 11th that year. So be sure to back uh, Johnny Jones and his cause for that, if nothing else. James, I am so appreciative. I did not know that you had that connection. I am so appreciative of you bringing that up. And I think it really puts, uh, it puts the seriousness of this uh, to the test. And again, we do have a link to sign that petition uh, on our website, dclabor.org. And as James said, let's, let's, let's keep all of those folks who, who died and, and the folks who are still out there you know, fighting every day. James, thanks for that. And thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate it, brother. Very welcome, Brother Garlock. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, Brother Smith. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Your Rights at Work with Chris and Ed, uh, engineered this week by Mike Nacella and Kalia Chapman. Thanks very much to the guys. Uh, also, this is your last weekend to catch working in D.C. You do not want to miss it, whether you haven't seen it or you want to see it again. I know I'm going back. It starts tonight. It's going to run tonight, tomorrow, Saturday, and Sunday. Black Lives Matter Plaza. The tickets are free. You can contribute whatever you want from zero to whatever. Go to dclabor.org and click on calendar. Or frankly, just show up. They're, they're not going to throw you out. It's all good. <laughs> Seven o'clock. Check it out. out. It's a lot of fun. And to give you a little taste, to give you just a little taste, uh, we got a little medley queued up for you here. So uh, here's some music. Thanks, Peace folks. Everybody. We'll see you next week. Take Peace care. everybody. Be safe. Thanks, James. Did you ever think, really stop and think, what a job it was?